Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And dialing in from Los Angeles, joining us for our last recorded episode of the year, our executive West Coast editor, Krista Smith. Hi, everybody. Krista, we haven't caught up with you on the air since Toronto, which it now feels like we've all lived many lives since then. Uh, A lot has gone on in the Oscar race and in life uh, since Toronto, so... We wanted to have you on to catch up and see what everyone's talking about in L.A., what the hot gossip is, uh, who loves A Star is Born and who doesn't. Um, So we'll get kind of an update from you and what you've honestly loved this season, which is always fun to hear. And then in the back half of this episode, we'll have Mike's conversation with Steve Coogan, who is a star of Stan and Ollie. And uh, they get into some fun conversations about the state of comedy these days. But first, Krista, how you been? I'm great. I miss you guys. Uh, And this is a perfect This is perfect timing because... Uh, during all the holiday parties that start basically December 1st, all anybody's talking about is what's going to win, who's going to win, who, you know, where they think it's all going to lay out. So it's basically all anybody's talking about on one end, and then the other end is whether you're going to Kona or St. Bart's or skiing. <laughs> so, <laughs> where, where are you going? LA Which one are you, you doing? Right? I'm staying right here. Uh, good, good plan. <laughs> um, I'm going to be in LA doing our thing until uh, you know New Year's. But uh, it's exciting. I mean, basically, I think it's interesting that A Star Is Born is held. Uh, I think we all saw it in Toronto, and I think uh, everyone fell in love with it there. And it still seems to be a super strong contender. I think the one that that's now kind of uh, most talked about is two things: one, Vice, whether you liked it or not, what you thought of it. There was so much anticipation, and also Roma. Is Roma going to get in for Best Picture as well as Best Foreign Film as well as Best Director for Quaron? And I think it's a real testament to see uh, what Netflix has been able to do with that and see if they can actually go the distance on it. But I think in terms of Vice, to me, uh, the race has really boiled down to Bradley Cooper for Best Actor and Christian Bale for Best Actor for Dick Cheney. And I feel like there, it's kind of funny because you are in California and we are in LA. And now we know after those midterms, it went all blue. There's, there's no more, there's very little red left in, in California. And I wonder if voters are going to actually vote for Christian Bale would that be voting for Dick Cheney? When they look at that ballot, are they going to give Dick Cheney the Oscar or are they going to give Jackson Maine the Oscar? So I think that's causing a lot of chatter. Everyone's, you know, weighing in on that. And then also the best picture, I think it's really interesting too, because if you're thinking about a star is born, it really, it's the fourth in incarnation of it and are they going to give a fourth incarnation an oscar basically 
I think it would be fun to to start with Vice since the embargo and that just came out. The reviews are up. Richard, you reviewed it for us. Um, Richard, I think you were not the biggest fan of Vice, and you seen it seems to be having a tough time with critics. Although based on what Chris is saying, uh, people are still really talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's had a tough go with critics like myself. Uh, not all. There were some rave reviews, certainly, uh, from the Hollywood Reporter in particular. I'm thinking of, but I haven't read a single review, including my own, that was not like Christian Bale's really good. Right. You know, it's just what yeah. the movie does with that performance. So can you isolate a really good performance from a movie that is controversial in other aspects? Well, and that, even know, the the criticism is seems to mostly break down around is the style that we all loved that Adam McKay brought to the big short the right fit for this topic, right? It's not like it's an inept movie. It's not like it's not an interesting movie. It's just kind of like this this might not really work at the end of the day, but an interesting thing to try. I, I feel like, I don't know. Um, but yeah, Christian Bale... You know, and, and to your point, Krista, yes, on the one hand, um, I guess it's a vote for Dick Cheney. It's also a vote for really, you know, dragging Dick Cheney and dunking on him very hard with a very, like, kind of negative biopic. Um, and it does seem like the Oscars love uh, impersonations, right? Like real life, real life enactments, especially by male actors uh, in the acting category. That's just kind of a classic. I would agree. I mean, you think of uh, like Gary Oldman, I mean, how he transformed into Churchill. We love a transformation. We love the, the hair and makeup. But I do think the one thing that I missed about Vice, and I did love it, I want to say that I enjoyed every second of it. And being, you know, living through 9-11 and being very cognizant and aware of what was going on uh, in politics at that time, I really appreciated his retelling of it. But I did miss finding out more about who Dick Cheney was. Uh, and I love what he did with Lynn Cheney, Amy Adams, obviously sublime. I mean, always good in everything she does. And the two of them, I mean, they can basically do no wrong in my book. But that was the one part that I missed. And I wonder if that is going to be the differentiating factor between him and Bradley Cooper. And I also, you know, listen, the Academy loves both of them. You know, certainly uh, they've been nominated multiple times. Christian has won before. So is that going to factor into it? But I do think it's something different when the Academy is voting for Churchill or voting for Dick Cheney. I just do feel like there is going to be a secondary pause on that. That's interesting. And and what about the idea of directing yourself? Is that do you get bonus points with the Academy? Do you think for for that in Bradley Cooper's case? <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think of when, uh, and you guys are going to make fun of me because I mean, I am going to mention Robert Redford, but when Redford uh, <laughs> directed, <laughs> everyone laugh, right? When Redford <laughs> directed Ordinary People and he won the Oscar at the, you know, for his first film that he ever directed and he was in 40s, early 40s, very similar to Bradley Cooper, he was not in the movie. So I don't know. That's a really interesting thing that you bring up, Mike, because I don't know if that factors into it in a beneficial way or in a, or it's a detriment. Well, you think about, you know, Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves or Mel Gibson for Braveheart, both starred in their own movies. They won for director, but not for acting, you know, so maybe the bias is more mm -hmm. towards the directing aspect of it. Um, but I also think that you're going back to the, to, you know, like the, the Dick Cheney aspect of it, the real life. I was just looking and I think my, my account might be off by one or two, but 11 of the best actor winners since 2000 have been for playing real people, which is like a pretty hefty amount of, you know, um, you know, not, not necessarily all famously known people, but all yeah. based on real people. So, um, you know, I think that there's clearly a heavy 
uh, preference for, uh, well, not that heavy, I guess it's only a little over half, but still uh, preference for that kind of role. Well, here's here's a scenario. Let's try this one out. Let's say that the four movies the Academy really thinks are very, very, very outstanding this year are Roma, Vice, A Star is Born, and maybe the, a favorite, right? The favorite. It, do we end up seeing like um, Roma winning Best Picture, A Star is Born winning Director, Bale winning uh, actor for Vice and Olivia Coleman winning actress for, you know, it seems like it, mm. it, there is a way like, to so kind of give everybody one of the biggies. Yeah, I would I would flip uh, Star is Born and Roma the way you said it. I still feel pretty convinced by a Star is Born is Best Picture and Roma is Best Director for all the ways that Roma is this enormous technical accomplishment. But I, I think you might be right, Mike, that we're going to see a spread, which I think if I'm remembering right, like we had a lot of that last year, too, like The Shape of Water won Best Picture and Director, but there was a lot of spread below that. Yeah, usually that that tends to to how it plays out. You know, everyone likes to spread the wealth around, and and this person gets that, and this, they get this, that, and the other. I would agree on that front. I just, you know, to me, the star is born. Everyone was talking about Lady Gaga. Oh my God, it was so shocking. Da da da. But to me, the real surprise of the talent was Bradley Cooper. I just feel like he is hitting the next level. Well, and the big thing to acknowledge with Bradley Cooper versus Christian Bale specifically is Christian Bale has an Oscar, Bradley Cooper does not. And that matters to people when putting together their ballots. I agree. And also Bradley Cooper has been out there and, and we know Christian Bale's like a vapor. Yeah, I, I think something I wrote about Bradley Cooper uh, in my top 10 of the year list, which I put Stars Born on, was that like he's been doing interesting work for a number of years now, whether it's American Hustle or American Sniper or even Burnt, where he's playing these very manic, tightly wound kind of hurting people uh and he's hurting in a star is born but there's this kind of great release and and it feels kind of cathartic even though it's this tragic story for his character like uh, for the actor i just feel like there's something that he got kind of out of his system finally and i i, I don't know how you know it like I, if i were a voter that's something i would be attuned to i think that christian bales is a great technical performance but there's something super emotionally connected about bradley cooper and that shows not just in the acting but in the way he made the rest of the film so that's where i would lean and i don't know maybe some of the sort of sappier people in the academy would lean that way too well yeah if you think about the road from wedding crashers to a star is born like that that is a very you know yeah he started out as this kind of clenched comic sort of prick character in yeah. many ways and and now to be this sort of lovable hot mess of a of a you know rock star hard on his sleeve just <laughs> yeah like, you know crying bleeding on screen you know, it's, it's very, true it's very vulnerable and mm-hmm. i think that that's kind of what i've been waiting for him it's interesting because it does balance out. I mean, it really, it, 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 it's a horse race because you think about it and he did change his voice dramatically. He did perform, sing. He has his own kind of, uh, you know, transformation as a character with the hair and the beard, uh, just as, as Christian, you know, changes into Dick Cheney. Uh, so I, I really think it is going to be a nail biter. I'm really, really curious. And I'm wondering if there's another actor in there that's going to split it up. Um, and the SAG, nominations they came out they were surprising for uh the actor category so i think that too could could throw a wrench into how it all shakes down and he is playing a real person he's playing uh chris christopherson or sam elliott or no no i'm just kidding <laughs> sam elliott <laughs> 
My big question on Vice 2 is A Star is Born is this huge hit. It's like, you know, standing up there like with Black Panther as these two like really popular movies in the best act, best picture race. Are people going to want to see Vice? Like, do you want to spend time with Dick Cheney over the holidays? Like, The Big Short was a hit and it was about complicated financial stuff. So like Adam McKay has a power there. But I do wonder if it's going to have the same zeitgeist appeal that A Star is Born has had. I, th- I can tell you from um, my own non-scientific explorations that Vice is definitely top of my for a lot of regular people who know that I get screeners. Um, you know, so I, I do think that it's 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 maybe, you know, it's maybe for a sophisticated audience, but that's an academy, that's an academy friendly or adjacent audience. I, I think people are interested in it. We talked about this, how they very effectively built anticipation for this using a mix of the kind of like, and, and frankly, like the Bush funeral stuff was sort of well timed for them. But but always people are interested in a Christian Bale transformation, right? He's really built a brand around that. Mike, are you going to say this is like when uh, when Harvey Weinstein killed Nelson Mandela when he had the Mandela biopic out just to get the, the, yeah. the real life buzz. Yeah, if Harvey were involved, I would be wondering uh, about the timing of HW's <laughs> passage. Um, I agree. Also, with, with Katie, with the, with the combination of Amy Adams and Christian Bale, uh, I think this is their third or fourth collaboration together. So I do think there is that movie star quotient that, that people definitely will, will go to the box office just to see them again and them as those real life characters. I do think there's interest there. Chrissy, you had something really interesting to say about Stars Born when we caught up yesterday, that Lady Gaga has a challenge in this race, not because of the quality of her performance, but because she's already so successful that people might not feel like they necessarily have to vote for her. Is that something you're really seeing that people are like, oh, she's got a Vegas residency, she's won Grammy, she doesn't need an Oscar? <laughs> well, I mean, if we're all being honest, there's the the the, the branch of actors is got to have the largest schadenfreude of any of the branches, right? So you think, you think about actors and, uh, you know, they're, they're looking at that ballot and do you check the box for Lady Gaga? You know, I wonder, I would love to have talked to her and Warner Brothers and actually Bradley about whether she was going to go by her, you know, birth name, which is Stephanie. And interestingly enough, when I did the uh, SAG Q&As for A Star is Born, both Bradley and Sam Elliott referred to her as Stephanie, but she preferred, you know, she's Lady Gaga. So it was, it, it's interesting to see how that plays out. But I absolutely think that that is uh, a factor. I mean, first of all, it's so exciting. She was so good in the movie. But at the same time, you're right, she does have uh, Grammys and, you know, she's doing a big residency at Vegas and she's so supremely talented. As an actor, do you then maybe check the box for Glenn Close, who has never won, but is such has always been there and always been good and nominated multiple times? Or do you do it for someone like Olivia Coleman, who's a journey woman, you know, who can play anything, who isn't the beauty queen, who, who broke in her 40s. It's a real psychological uh, quandary, I think. There's probably also negative bonus points for even if it's not strictly true that the notion that she's like playing herself, she's playing a character that is not that different from her own self, which is, you know, which may sort of give a demerit or two instead of some kind of stretching into some very different role. And 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 for a person who's not professionally an actress, although there's obviously a huge amount of acting performance in all of the the pop music she does, that the, there are ways that actors are going to say, "Eh, you know, like she's great, but it's she's just being her 
at some level. It could be, but it, we do. But we did feel so much watching that movie, you know. And I do know she's being offered everything in town. So it is kind of. It, it will be really, really interesting uh, to see how it plays out on on Sunday for the Oscars. I really am very, very curious, and I can't. I can't definitively say what I think is going to win at this point in time on any of these, which is really exciting. Usually at this point, right before the break where everyone has either seen everything or they have their screenings, we, we have a really good idea of who's going to win. And I, I have a arguments for everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's especially interesting because it's a three way race for actress, right? So, you know, if it were Gaga versus one other person, um, that would be one thing, but it feels a little bit like Gaga versus two other options, in which case the, those potentially could split the vote. But on the other hand, you know, it could break another way, too. It's, it is it is uh, kind of wonderfully competitive this year. It really is. A lot of good movies. They keep releasing movies. I'm like, enough already. <laughs> and, right, and, and here's the thing, too, guys. Is Amy Adams going to get her sixth Oscar nomination and no win? Oh, my God. When Arrival happened and she didn't get nominated for Best Actress, which was insane, uh, I was convinced that the next time she got nominated, she would win. Like, there was just so much astonishment that she, you know, a performance like that could go unrecognized. But I think you're right, Krista. Like, Vice is in this position where it's, like, all about Christian Bale's performance. Like, obviously, she's good in the movie, as she always is. But we were talking last week about how even though Regina King missed out on a SAG nomination for If Feel Street Could Talk, she still feels like a really likely winner in the Sporting Actress category, which is where Amy Adams would be competing against her. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that I, I was shocked that Regina didn't get that nod. It's sad, like she was shocked, basically. And I think pe- other people, you know, the community was as well. And I fully anticipate her getting an Oscar nomination. But yeah, it, it is kind of crazy to think that Amy has had so many, <laughs> so many nominations, which we know how hard that is in in the course of one's career. And she's kind of arguably just getting started. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know that this year is going to be any different. Not even in the course of one's career, but in just the course of 10 years. I mean, like, just, you know, or a or, or little over 10 years when you think with Junebug. Like, it's just, she's had an incredible run. Um, and I also think, that, but I also think that we're maybe working against her is this theory of the, the, the you know, everyone gets a little love, like Regina King winning that, that way you honor If Beale Street Could Talk, another movie that people really like. And, you know, and then Richard E. Grant could win for Can You Ever Forgive Me, which honors another really great movie that people love. So, you know, we could see everyone winning, every movie winning something and, and and nothing doubling up, you know, in the big categories anyway. Well, it also seems like with Amy, you really have this feeling of like, well, we'll just get her next year. Right. Right. The well, next when she does another amazing That's what they said about Glenn Close in the 80s. <laughs> right. And look where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, true. It it'll, it'll, will be interesting if she wins, if there is kind of a steamroll and she gets the Golden Globe and the SAG, you know, because she also has sharp objects. So she was on television with HBO. So it could be kind of interesting if that might steamroll some momentum if she wins those awards. It could steamroll her towards towards an Oscar. Uh, but yeah, no, it is, it, it's true. It is kind of bananas if you think about it. She Briefly. could just host the Oscars. Oh. <laughs> yeah, good idea. Krista, we, we've been talking about the Oscar host drama, obviously, amongst ourselves. But I'm curious of the view from Los Angeles. Uh, is it just true that n- nobody wants to host the Oscars at this point? It's the hardest and most thankless job in Hollywood. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Convince me of another narrative. I, you know, I, I was thinking back to Seth MacFarlane, right? And I adore Seth. I, I just like him personally. And I think he's just wildly talented. And when he hosted, that was the top 
performing Oscars in a very long time, right? They were very thrilled about the numbers. It was all up and, and all of that stuff. And now I think about when he had the New York uh, City Gay Men's Choir singing Show Us Your Boobs, and he did that whole little skit with, like, the women participating. That would never fly now. Never, 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 never. So I don't know, you know, the Kevin Hart, I feel like there's just been a lot of mismanagement and some missteps, uh, you know, with announcing the popular Oscar and then unannouncing the popular Oscar with doing the Kevin Hart, but maybe, maybe not properly vetting or maybe not getting on the same page with his, with his team and him about stuff that could come up. I don't know. It just seems like a lot of unforced errors. I think unforced errors is a really good way to put it. Yeah, and I and none of it's intentional. I think all of it's meant, you know, all of it's well-intentioned. I just think exactly. It's just unforced errors. So at a certain point, you're like, now we're so late. I mean, it is, how is someone going to host this? Like starting January, you've got no weeks to perform to prepare. It's so hard. I even, when, you know, Jimmy Kimmel was doing, you know, that was late and that happened in Thanksgiving. So I do think at a certain point it does become a little thankless, but I, but if memory serves me and Richard, you'll probably be much better at this. But I remember the last year there was a no host Oscars. It was Rob Lowe dancing with Snow White. So I'm not sure that's a great idea either. Famously, one of the biggest Oscar catastrophes of all time, or one of the most mocked, anyway. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you, Krista, if you, if there, or anyone else, if they have any conception of what a quote-unquote hostless Oscars would look like. What would the opening number be? Who would introduce it? Like, I don't really know. We're so conditioned to the Billy Crystal model of we do a little parody video or something, a parody song, and then we go into a monologue that's topical but kind of warm, warmed over, and then you know, this is the year to do it. Because you just started off with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga performing one of those songs, like, and you yeah. just blow it the hell out. Yeah, and I think that would be fine. And you have an announcer actually. just be like, "All right, let's yeah. get on." And maybe it save some time. It would. Yeah, yeah. Right. You just start with the song. I mean, frankly, where's Tom Hanks when you need him? I mean, he could be a master of ceremonies here, and kind of, you know, if you were to just mix up how they do it ex- exactly, just start completely different, just knock it on its on its head. Uh, it does seem like if you can get people to kind of accept that the Oscars have traditions but don't necessarily have to do the same thing every year. Like, this is a perfect point to change things, to, to like, get rid of the format that's worked uh, to varying degrees over the years and actually try something different and see if that if it works out for people. You mentioned the unforced errors, and I think the, the problem is that they seem to clearly be under pressure, right, to stop the audience from sinking from from like going away they're trying to stop the bleeding and so they're kind of playing scared and so i think they're unforced errors they're not they're not intentionally bad things but they show that they are in a little bit of a state of desperation and it's not dovetailing well or it's dovetailing in a in an unhelpful way with a, a moment thanks to you know a bunch of things including harvey weinstein and trump where people are just like not in a super great humor mood about like jokes that they probably would have put up with a few years ago or laughed off. And so it maybe really is the perfect year to like have some songs, have a, a, a not that controversial person, like keep the show moving and not try and do some like incredibly clever thing that could go horribly wrong and turn into a giant Twitter like fiasco just at the time when you're trying to not alienate what's left of your audience. Right. Cause the, the, pro- the issue here now is that it's not that we can't be funny about this stuff. It's not, 
not that we can't, you know, frame it in some sort of ironic way. It's that that has to be done thoughtfully and carefully. And, you know, this conversation could easily get into comedians being like, you can't go to college campuses anymore because no no one can. That's not actually really what's happening. What's happening is that people are asking for a little bit more forethought and like consideration, maybe while crafting jokes that can be edgy. Now, like you said, Krista, there's two two months like how do you, you, you there's no way you could do that. The risk is too great. So then you either are the host who does a really milquetoast, boring Oscars or you're the host that really steps in it. And so everyone's like, and, and all, with with little protection seeming from the academy. So like, yeah, well, like let's just have this be you know in sports untold. It's called a rebuilding year, right? <laughs> and then, and I mean the only the people that I <laughs> good think reference, of, Richard. Not, there's plenty of people who complain about it, but like SNL somehow does this once a week, right? They put they put comedy together, but they just did the Emmys and they're on the wrong network, so you can't. <laughs> You can't get them to do it. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it just seems like a really hard thing to pull off in the, in the short amount of time. Krista, would Tom Hanks be your pick? Is that who you wish would just swoop in and save everything? I mean, don't we always want Tom Hanks to save everything? <laughs> I mean, I, I love the idea of Kevin Hart. I thought he would be funny. I'm a big fan of Kevin Hart. Uh, so I was disappointed when when that didn't happen. But I... You know, I do think it's it, it's interesting because both things are happening at the same time. One, this year is super exciting, and we have all these big, fat commercial movies that people loved that went to see again and again and again, and we haven't even talked about Black Panther and how that's going to play in to the Oscar race, okay? So you have these movies that everyone's passionate about, and even Roma, like Roma that, that you know, Netflix now is showing movies in theaters for, for an limited, but, it, but pretty much a, a very large amount of time three weeks, right? So you have all these people excited about that. You have people excited about A Star is Born. You have people excited about Black Panther, about The Favorite, about all these movies. It really is a banner year for film. And it's so unfortunate that it's happening along the time when they had this host mix up and they've had all these other issues. It's just too bad that both are on the same parallel tracks. Uh, but, but I agree with Mike. I like the idea of, you know, starting with, with a song and just mix, you know, just changing the energy of it. It's not just a banner year for film. It's a banner year for, for Hollywood film. Uh, I, we should put together some sort of issue celebrating Hollywood. Don't you think that'd be fun for the magazine? <laughs> I, wanna, I love that idea. Gee, gee, huh. Hmm. <laughs> but who could do it? Let's check in uh, briefly on what seems like our ongoing saga of Green Book and what's happening with it in audiences. Uh, this week, uh, the headlines about it have been dominated by the family of the guy who personally plays in the movie, Don Shirley, uh, basically saying that no one from the production ever contacted them to get their version of the story, which, uh, as you know, the uh, the son of Viva Mortensen's character was a co-writer in the screenplay. It kind of came from his point of view. Um, it's not the greatest headline. It does feel like it comes every year for a movie. Like the I remember the wolf, the you know victims of the Wolf of Wall Street coming out complaining about that. Um, but in this movie that is specifically already in like really tricky racial territory, to have them come out and be like, yeah, you didn't really depict your uh, black protagonists as accurately as you could have if you had just asked us. It's ugh, it's it's a tough spot for them. Yeah, and I wish um, our own critic uh, Cameron Collins were here to talk about this because he wrote something very thoughtful i think about you know how that's an issue that that you've got one family very much represented here and the other the other family was not seemingly consulted and, and then it turned out that 
that Peter Farrelly had spoken to the actual uh, Dr. Shirley that, that Mahershala Ali played, but that they had never did talk to the rest of the family. The family's really objecting to the characterization to the point where uh, Shadow and Act wrote, you know, went and talked to a lot of family members um, and revealed that Mahershala Ali had, in fact, called them to apologize, had said that he had been told there wasn't much information, you know, he didn't realize. It's it's not it's not a great look for them, and I think it just underscores the notion that this is a, a, a film in the vein of a Driving Miss Daisy that you know it appeals to kind of like mainstream white liberals because it's all about sort of let's all get along and learn to to be better toward each other, but that that African American audiences are just sort of tired of this narrative and not yeah. really that impressed by it. Perhaps the most salient crucial point that Cam gets at in his piece and 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 that is one of the most crucial things uh, you know afflicting this movie is that members of Shirley's family have said they weren't friends. They had a they had a rapport sure, but like this guy was Dr. you know Dr. Shirley's driver. He was his employee, he was his chauffeur. And the movie inverts that to, to such a degree that this lonely queer guy, black man living, you know, in Carnegie Hall, he, where where does he go at the end of the movie? He goes to the Christmas at the White family's house and they're they're the community that he finds and it's like that is pretty insulting to what the family is saying was was actually the truth, you know, and sort of positioning it in this very I mean, white-centered way. And I think that, um, you know, I, I did not know the truth of it when I saw the film in Toronto when I said, well, you know, for what it is, it's pretty well made. And I didn't, you know, I didn't do my due diligence. Um, I'm glad that that's been done now. And it's sort of a good lesson for all of us, uh, critics like myself, especially maybe who see these things first to be like, all right, let's do a little bit of homework before we, you know, weigh in on, on these kind of supposedly based on true story movies. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, look, uh, Three Billboards last year had some sort of similar-ish problems, although it wasn't based on a true story. It was just more that people were objecting to this kind of this theme you see a lot, which is the redemption of a white racist. And and um, But, you know, Sam Rockwell and Francis McDormand won Oscars and the movie did very well. And, and I think Green Book has a lot of, you know, as Cam, I don't want to speak for Cam, but we were talking about it. He's like, Cam's like, look, there's a big constituency for this movie among Oscar voters. Like, you know, I get it. Like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do well at the Oscars. But but these issues, it's I think it's good that they're being aired and that people are talking about it, you know. Yeah. And it's a constant reminder that if you're making a movie based on a true story, especially if there are, you know, complicated racial dynamics involved, like you just got to the family's going to figure it out. They're going to know that movie is out there. Like it, it truly does feel like every single year there is some like blemish on a based on a true story movie that people come out to talk about. Uh, I guess Queen Anne's relatives haven't been complaining about the favorite. But uh, when you said it 200 years in the past, you get a little bit more leeway. I don't know how much of it is like 1% problems where you're making a movie, you have no idea if anyone's ever going to watch it. You go ahead and make your movie and it's only later it becomes a huge, you know, success and phenomenon and you're in the Oscar race and you realize, oh shit, we should have like done more due diligence. But, you know, presumably Peter Farrelly had reasonable expectations of success. You know, like you said, it's a good lesson. I think it's worth it to kind of ask as many tough questions at the beginning rather than later. I don't think it'll hurt in terms of the performance nominations. I would anticipate that both Vigo and Mahershala will get in, and I do anticipate that the film uh, will get nominated. I don't know what that means for Peter fairly or for it actually winning best picture. I would have had it winning uh, because of the Toronto and because of its like kind of general mass appeal. But now I don't, now I'm not as convinced. Right. I mean, I wonder if, if the sort of timidity surrounding the hosting stuff, does that trickle down to voting? I mean, obviously that's a much bigger body of people than the people hiring a host, but like, 
how much of that of the kind of current you know, and necessary climate of of rethinking things and sort of re- trying to reframe things and see the the whole truth of something. Um, does that affect voters? Or you know, we see every year with these you know anonymous academy member does their dream ballot, and you're like, holy hell, these people are clearly not like reading well, anything. There's definitely ten people on Scott Feinberg's speed dial who are voting for Green Book because of this <laughs> well, controversy. Right. Um, well, well, as we wrap up this conversation, uh, we will have an episode next week, but it's going to be uh, interviews we've already done. So this is kind of the last uh, conversation we'll have before the end of the year. And uh, presumably there are some voters listening to this who have their piles of screeners. Uh, do you guys want to make any last minute pleas or things that you want people to consider or what you're rooting for to come through with the nomination in about a month? Uh, Krista, I'm curious about what your uh, what your favorite dog in the race is at this point. Oh, it's like picking your favorite children. <laughs> <laughs> One of your favorites. How about that? Uh, well, I really think that Bradley Cooper's uh, performance deserves an Oscar. I'd like to see him win an Oscar. And I'd like to see Amy Adams win an Oscar. I think I think those are many agreed upon ideas. Uh, Richard, how about you? I mean, you have a whole top 10 that people can see for your favorites. So yes, people should go read that. Um, Krista, I mean, I agree with you about the Cooper thing, just because I foolishly went out on a limb on Twitter and back in September was like Bradley Cooper is winning the Oscar. So I really cannot be proved wrong because I have had a decent <laughs> track record with those bold declarations in the past. So you're not supposed to bring attention to it until it actually comes I, true. I, I know. Whoops. Whoops. Um, but beyond that, um, I really hope that can you ever forgive me gets something. I think that that's one of the great smaller movies of the year made by a great coterie of people, including Marielle Heller, who we had on the podcast last week, uh, Richard Grant, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago. You know, whether it's a screenplay, a supporting actor or something, I just think that that's such a nice movie that could use the little profile bump from from that, at least from a bunch of nominations. Like Richard, I'm going to use this opportunity to log roll people who've actually bothered to come in here and talk to us. But seriously, um, Steve Steve Coogan, who we're going to hear this uh, interview I did with him, um, Stan and Ollie's an interesting film and Martin Scorsese himself came out and introduced it the other night at this event that we had. And um, he, Steve and uh, John C. Riley are really good in this. And then the other thing I'll say, because I, I did the interview today and you won't hear it till um, the beginning of the year, but uh, Ethan Hawke in First Reformed, he's been winning every critics award for acting, but did not make the SAG or Golden Globe. So I, we're counting on the Academy to, um, I think, correct the record here and, and give him a nomination for this this film, which is really good. Uh, and I want to wrap it up with a, probably a quixotic recommendation, but I finally saw Leave No Trace, which, Richard, you've been talking about, I feel like, all year. You talked to Deborah Granick on the show earlier this year. It was number two on your top ten. Uh, that movie is terrific, and I really want people to see it. I'd be happy for either Ben Foster or Thomas McKenzie to get nominations. I don't necessarily think it will happen, but hopefully they at least cast Thomas and McKenzie in everything possible because she's such an incredible uh, upcoming star. I was just so glad that I caught it, and if people decide they have time to expand their horizons a little bit, it's so worth it. Yeah, and if the Academy wanted to, you know, if they're concerned about female direct Directors, Marielle Heller and Deborah Granick are right there. Uh, yeah. So who knows? I agree. I thought that movie was fantastic. And it's one of those little hidden gems that I think will gain momentum like through word of mouth. But uh, I agree. Great performances all around. Really, really great filmmaking. So, Mike, we're going to uh, listen to the interview that you had with Steve Coogan. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, you uh, also did a Q&A with him and Martin Scorsese, which is a totally normal way to spend an evening. Um, it sounds like you guys, you guys had a good conversation. We did. And he actually did his um, Michael Caine impersonation, which was really sort of my main goal. 
and we talked about Alan Partridge. Um, we talked about we talked about Stan Laurel, who he plays in this film. Who and I think Steve and and Stan Laurel have certain things in common. They're both sort of technicians of comedy, if if that makes sense. Uh, and so we talked about that for a bit. He was being really nice for almost the whole conversation, but thankfully at one point I pressed him enough on something where he got kind of pissed off at me. I I, I feel like you just you know I've watched the trip movies. Like I don't want to have a conversation with Steve Coogan where he doesn't at some point get pissed off and annoyed with me. Did you bust out your inferior Michael Caine impersonation? Is that what happened? I really yeah. thought about it and then I decided not to. So I did not do any impersonations. I uh, will look forward to that and listen to your conversation with Steve Coogan. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. Well, I'm thrilled to be here with Steve Coogan here in the studio, star of Stan and Ollie with John C. Riley. This fascinating, really great new film about Laurel and Hardy. And Steve, I know of you as kind of a, a scholar of comedy in a way, or I think of you that way. And so I wanted to start by asking you, like, Laurel and Hardy, what's your background with them? Why are they important to comedy? My background with Laurel and Hardy uh, on a personal level is I grew up with them on TV. You know, I, I was aware of them from being a small child. And yeah, they were my first experience of comedy and entertainment. And it's something I went on to make my living in. My livelihood was uh, and has been largely from making comedy shows, uh, although I start to do more serious stuff recently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but Laurel and Hardy have certainly uh, opened the door to something inside my imagination and so that there's certainly a personal connection where i felt it was important i wanted to tell the story i wanted to you know when there was an opportunity for me to play stan laurel i found it uh, irresistible really uh, even though i was anxious about it i, I couldn't i couldn't say no uh, even though it's fraught with uh, pitfalls and potential opportunities for colossal failure why, why pitfalls um, why? well because you're taking on this mantle you you know you're trying to breathe life into someone who is iconic and that's you know the odds are stacked against you uh, mm-hmm. when you do something like that because the natural reaction for anyone is to say he's good but he's nothing like stan laurel that's what is the most likely response however hard you try <laughs> right. from most people so it's going to be a tall order but i identified a little with stan laurel because i've written comedy for years and i've and uh, i'm from the north of england which is where he was he came over to 
the U.S. on a steamship in 1910 with Charlie Chaplin, amongst others. So he's one of those guys who takes me five hours on an airplane. And uh, but uh, I feel like that um, they say a cat may look at a king, uh, meaning you know someone of low status can uh, can look at someone of high status. It doesn't make them like them, but. Uh, with myself, with regards to Stan Laurel, I felt a kind of kinship with who he was, uh, yeah. and it resonated with me. So that's why I wanted to take part in it. And um, in terms of themselves as artists, why I think they're important yeah. is that their comedy transcends the normal uh, vagaries and uh, fashions of any particular given time. They, they Most of their comedies were made in the 1930s. But there's nothing that dates them specifically, apart from the films that are in black and white. The comedy is not uh, makes no contemporary references, and uh, I don't know if they even knew at the time they were making comedy that would be timeless. Yeah. But you don't know who the president is. You don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. It's surprising when you look at how gentle and loving their comedy is, because although it makes you laugh out loud, uh, there's nothing malicious or hateful in their comedy. You can make people laugh by playing to their prejudices, to playing the worst side of them people's human nature and you can make them laugh by by mocking people certainly mocking uh, the less fortunate i don't hold with that comedy i don't like that kind of comedy i think you should punch up not down and laurel and hardy whatever they did how whatever misfortunes befell them there was a, an underlying love in their comedy and that's why i've had a huge amount of respect for them and despite the how gentle their comedy was it's uh, sometimes shocking to remind yourself that their comedy was played out against the backdrop of the Great Depression in the U.S. Yeah. And the march of fascism across Europe. Uh, yet they, uh, people sort of gravitated in those uncertain, turbulent times towards something that was life-affirming and forgiving and um, loving. Yeah. It's funny because it is gentle in this in that sense of being childlike, but it's also they're really like beating on each other an awful lot, right? I mean, it's that kind of consequence-free violence is sort of one of the fun parts of it, right? Yeah, it's um, no one gets severely injured. You know, right. I mean, if they end up in hospital, it's like with bandages. Uh, it, it's kind of cartoon style. Everything's right. cartoon style. Yeah. But even in very broad comedy, if it's done well, broad accessible comedy isn't dumb comedy. Yeah. It can be incredibly sophisticated. And actually, because you laugh out loud at it, it can tempt you to feel that it's somehow lowbrow or that it's unsophisticated. In actual fact, the, the processes behind making that kind of universal comedy, that let's not forget, make the whole world laugh, not yeah. just America, the whole world. It was huge globally. The work that goes on behind that is incredible, the craftsmanship. Yeah. Well, that was one thing that I thought was really interesting that I didn't realize that Stan Laurel was in some ways the, the brains of the operation, right? He was the one forever writing, revising, coming up with the jokes. And and Oliver Hardy was a wonderful performer, but mm -hmm. kind of on, on Stan's page. That's right. Well, I, I said to John the other day, it seemed to me that uh, Stanley lived to work and Oliver worked to live. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, Oliver, as soon as they uh, finished making their movies, he would clock off and head down to the golf club or yeah. the racetrack and hang out with his friends and have fun. And Stanley would be all-consuming. Uh, well, his, his work would be all-consuming. And that's meant really he sacrificed his personal life at the expense of his art mm -hmm. and, um, and sort of paid a price for that. Mm -hmm. As many as many creative geniuses or, or genii do when they uh, subjugate themselves to 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 their art to make to make something really good, they can screw up their personal lives, and that that was I think the case for Stanley. 
uh, mm-hmm. to some extent. I did wonder, you know, because then the work he ends up playing the fool, right? He's the, he's the guy in charge, the mastermind, and he's playing the fool. And it and it and I wondered if you related to that in, in the sense of being the guy who created Alan Partridge, right? Who's a sort of a silly character in some ways, a silly guy, and yet, but you're the you know, it doesn't happen without you having all the yeah, smart that's, that's, input yeah. into it. Well, I guess it, it's true that uh, when I do, I, I created a, ca- a comic character in the UK, very successful. The nature of the character is that it's. Because I'm in, I'm one of the chief creators. I've had help from other people, but I'm I'm the one that's always there because I do it. <laughs> and um, yeah, some of it is an extension of me. It's aspects of my personality given a twist and and uh, caricatured and exaggerated, and and the, and the worst aspects of my personality that you bring to the fore and you crank up the volume and you end up with a funny character. So, but there's still the aspects of the character that are rooted in me. Yeah, and uh, the same way that Stan Laurel's uh, character, there are aspects in him, and also Oliver Hardy. There, although he didn't write, he did, but he did help create his own character. So there are definitely uh, um, uh, manifestations of who these 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 guys were. And it's the same with me. You know, you 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 dig you dig into what you've got. But Stan Laurel was was the genius behind their great relationship. He he was the brains. And uh, yes, it's true. Not many people know that. And I think part of what the reason I wanted to get involved with the film was to hopefully sort of uh, be involved in a project to to bring these guys to life and, you know, shine a spotlight on them. This is a love letter to the comedy of Lauren Hardy, but, but to the craft of comedy and comedians everywhere, the people who sort of put so much of the time and effort into making people laugh. It's almost like a love story between these two these two guys. And I mean, I think there's even kind of language to that effect in the film and, and it's about their partnership. So what was the partnership between you and John C. Riley, like funnily enough, John and I, our journey was not dissimilar to the journey that Lauren Hardy went on. Mm-hmm. I knew John a little, but not a lot, um, which was the case with Stan and Ollie. They were aware of each other, um, but they were just sort of bit part players on on the periphery of uh, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And Hal Roach brought them together and said, "Okay, you guys figure out an act." That's similar to the experience John and I had. We were thrown together and said, "Okay, figure out some." chemistry create something uh, on screen and we spent three or four weeks in rehearsal going through sketches and dance routines and uh, all manner of uh, trying to bring them to life physically and in during that period not only did we learn that these routines we also got to know each other as individuals uh, we also experienced what it would have been like for laurel and hardy because they rehearsed their numbers mm-hmm. they would have been in a room going through dance steps with each other and that's what we did. So it was a little taste of what it was like to be them. And John and I knew that to make this successful, we'd have to work hand in hand, shared as a problem halved. That was my experience on this movie, that John and I were truly partners and became good friends. You're famous for, through the trip movies and other things, really famous for your impressions. And and part of the challenge here is to, as you said, like, well, that's pretty good, but it's nothing like Stan Laurel. Did you approach the Stan Laurel impression the way that you do your Michael Caine impression or your Roger Moore or... or I better give you an example, just in case any of your listeners don't 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 uh, doubt me. But Michael Caine, said, <laughs> hey, he has this sort of very old. He ha- he speaks slightly through his nose. It's slightly nasal, and occasionally he gets very very loud. <laughs> but it's and then and now he's older. It's a little bit more gravelly, but it's certainly still recognisably Michael Caine. And uh, my approach to Stan Laurel was. I do have this facility, which is, you know, I grew up being able to do funny voices and do the voices of teachers at school and uh, people on TV. But it's just a device. It's a useful device. And for 
trying to find who Stan Laurel was. I could do a kind of, I could do an impersonation the way he spoke a little bit like that. It's sort of mid-Atlantic accent. It's, you don't know whether it's English or, or American. It's halfway between the two. And, uh, and um, that was a little, I, I could kind of do a version of that, but that's uh, uh, fraught with uh, risk because you could just end up doing something which is superficial. It's no good sounding like the guy, and you have the makeup and you put it on and make yourself look like Stan Laurel, which we did with great effect. Yeah, very But good. none of that counts, uh, that counts for diddly squat. You know, if you can't get under the skin and bring these people to life. And um, beyond making people laugh with, with the little routines that we learned, you need to touch people. You need to touch people on an emotional level and make them care about the characters and care about the story. Otherwise, it, it fails. If you're just laughing, if it's, if it's just, uh, and there's no heart to it, then you run out of steam after about a half hour. It's interesting because Jeff Pope, so that we had a screening, a uh, wonderful screening the other night and Martin Scorsese introduced a film and said some really nice things. He basically said, this is like having a, a new Laurel and Hardy movie, which is pretty cool. And beforehand, I was talking to Jeff Pope, who's a screenwriter. And he said, because John C. Reilly had just been nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance in, in the musical comedy category. And Jeff said, happy for John, but actually to me, like, I don't, don't even think of this as a comedy. I think of it more as a drama. I mean, how do you see it? I don't think this movie is a, I mean, you, you ask me straight out. Yeah. Is this movie a comedy? No. Does yeah. it make you laugh? Yes. Yes. But I wouldn't describe it as a comedy. I think it's a, it's a, it's a drama that makes you laugh and, mm -hmm. and makes you cry. There are funny moments in it, but it's, uh, that's how I, I see it. But um, to describe it as a drama, sometimes kind of marketing people get very anxious about that because people don't, people, they say that people want to go on to the cinema. They, they like to go and have a laugh, but they, they very rarely, if you ask an audience, hey, do you want to go and cry? Right. They, then they normally go, no, thanks. Right. I, I, got, I got enough of that in my life. <laughs> so, but in actual fact, they respond to when they do, then they tell their friends. They say, you know, I just saw this great movie. And if it moves them, they love it. I feel like you also specialize a little bit in the, for lack of a better term, the tears of a clown side of things. I mean, what is it about comedians and the sort of the drama in their lives, dark side of their lives that, that attracts you and that attracts um, audiences? I think that, well, I mean, there is a cliche of the tears of the clown, the sort of dysfunctional person behind the, the laughter. And there's certainly that is true with a lot of people in comedy especially those who feel like they have to always be on, always be performing, always be getting the laughs. Uh, you may have realized, uh, as we're this far into the interview, that I'm not one of those people who needs to get laughs all the time. Because <laughs> this is, although I hope this has been interesting, I can hardly describe what I've said so far as being hilarious. Right. <laughs> um, so I don't feel I'm afflicted in quite the same way, but yeah. I recognize it. I certainly recognize it. Some yeah. people, when they make a career in comedy, they feel if, they're not, if the audience have stopped laughing, they're going to die they're going to slowly die. And um, I don't have a problem with silence. I kind of enjoy it. But unless you're on stage trying to do comedy, then that's a problem. But generally, I don't think it's just confined to comedy. A lot of people who strive for excellence in a creative field, it's unusual that they have a perfectly balanced personal life. Right. I think that's uh, the exception, not the norm. You kind of have to go the extra mile. If you clock off at 5 p.m. and clock on at 9 a.m., you might be competent at uh, being creative, but uh, to be truly excellent, I think you kind of have to live and breathe it. Yeah. We joked the other night about you and John hosting the Oscars, but it, it is 
It's a crazy time for comedy. I mean, the whole Kevin Hart sort of very short period of being the Oscar host and then not being the Oscar host mm-hmm. because of jokes that mm-hmm. he had said you sure. know, some time back on Twitter. What do you think? Do you think this is a harder time than usual to do comedy? Is it? Is that a good thing? I, is think, it- I think there are a couple of issues. One is that um, I'm very anti-censorship. I think that although we can encourage people not to have prejudices, which is very important, I don't think you can legislate or impose draconian rules to demand people have a certain point of view. You can't demand people to have a point of view. However much it might seem the right thing, demand that people have enlightened views. You can't force someone to have an enlightened point of view. You can only encourage it and be positive about it when they do and and hope people follow suit. I personally don't like comedy that encourages any kind of prejudice. I think that if there are targets to your comedy, and there have to be targets, Mm -hmm. those targets should be the rich and the powerful. That's what comedy should do is call those people to account. I think if you're a CEO and you're on a, I don't know, X million or billion a year, you're fair game. I think if you're a hobo and you're down and out, I don't think you're fair game. Mm-hmm. That's the way I go about it. Now, some people, their comedy thrives on, on, uh, on exploiting stereotypes. I don't like to do that. If I do find comedy in that, like with Alan Partridge, he is a prejudiced character, I do. But the laugh is at the expense of the prejudiced guy. You're laughing at his prejudice, not at the target. And that to me is very important. I think people who are creative do have a responsibility and should be accountable. But that accountability should be in a peer group uh, being able to say, I don't agree with what you say. But there shouldn't be this idea of that means you have to ban people from saying things you don't like. You either believe in freedom of speech or you don't. And if you do, then that means sometimes you have to listen to people you don't agree with and you don't like the way they're phrasing things. And what you have to do is engage in uh, conversation with them and uh, counter what they say with your own point of view. That's That to me seems healthy, healthy discourse. And to try and keep it on a civil level of disagreeing without being disagreeable. But do you think that, leaving aside legislating things, but do you feel that, that Kevin Hart got treated unfairly through this whole thing? Or do you think... Uh, that well if you listen to what i've said yeah the answer answers that question yeah quite comprehensively yeah okay let's talk about jeff pope who you guys had to run through the whole oscar race with philomena you were you were That's nominated right. for mm-hmm. uh best picture for for you co-wrote that screenplay and and then he wrote this screenplay as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. so what was that like doing the oscar thing with him it was fun you know it was a little uh, we went on a little um uh, merry-go-round. It was like a roller coaster ride. We started in Venice, and the film what that we thought was uh, you know it was the little engine that could. It was a small film, um, just about a, a friendship between a an elderly Irish working class woman and a middle aged middle class Oxbridge intellectual, and uh, that odd couple seemed to capture people's imagination. And uh, yeah, but doing the whole. Getting you know on the, the treadmill of publicity was strangely enjoyable because we never thought we'd get there at all. And uh, I came out to America with the real Philomena. It was wonderful. I remember we did uh, we did some charity awards, and Bill Clinton was giving uh, out an, um, some award, but one of one of these kind of uh, hero awards for for people who've done noble things. Yeah. Security came on stage, and someone said, "Are you uh, Mr. Coogan?" I mean, yes, the president wants to meet you. You know. 
said, oh, and I went up. And uh, someone else said, they just heard Bill Clinton asking if that was Phil- the Philomena and Steve Coogan. He wanted to meet them. And I went over and he just said, uh, I just say, I love that film. I cried like a baby when I heard I saw that film. <laughs> Hillary's going to be so jealous when she hears that I met you guys. There was a real affection for this story. And I was very proud of it. I brought my mom and dad to the Oscars and we did the whole thing. Oh, and uh, we, I had a ball. It was a very, you know, magical. You got to take it all with a pinch of salt, you know. Yeah. But if it's work you're proud of, then it was the first time I'd, I'd, I'd ever attempted to write a drama, which I did with Jeff. Before that, I'd only ever written comedies. And yeah. I sat down and thought, I'm going to have a go at writing a drama. And I wind up at the Oscars. So that's, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty good. That's pretty good for a first effort. And you said you guys are working on two more scripts, right? Yeah, we, we've written two others that have yet to be made. We're hoping to make one next year. We're sort of talking to uh, a potential director. I can't see who it is at the moment, but it's looking good that we're going to shoot it this year. It's about a, about the woman who found the body of Richard III beneath a car lot in Leicester, England, oh, about wow. five years ago. Because um, Richard III, King Richard III's body had been missing since 1485. So the chances of finding it were pretty slim. No kidding. I, I missed that story somehow. That's amazing. Um, it's a great story. It's just a story. Of, it's uh, true. It's a true story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. uh, yes, the, body, the body was discovered five years ago. There's a whole museum in Leicester. And yeah, the, the odds against finding it were colossal. I mean, a needle in a haystack would be an easier task than, than right. what this woman set out to achieve. That's amazing. And will you act in that too? probably is the answer yeah. i always try to line up a nice juicy supporting role for myself uh so i can get paid twice right <laughs> um and, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good yeah, strategy yeah. so uh yeah i, I think so probably yeah. unless i get a better offer <laughs> if people are as they will be inspired to learn more about laurel and hardy from watching the film what do you recommend what what's what's a good thing to watch well sons of the desert is a pretty good one it just has all the hallmark moments of i mean laurel and hardy's movies are fantastic some are stronger than others sons of the desert in actual fact the title of that episode was used by the fan club uh, the laurel and hardy fan club which is called sons of the desert uh, which is an international fan club of people who keep the memory of laurel and hardy alive and uh, they they gave the movie uh, their seal of approval which is a huge relief because if you don't have them on side then you're in trouble right uh, right <laughs> that's and, good uh, but, but I heard Laurel's family also was on board, which they had never been on board with. That's anything. right. His daughter died last year, unfortunately. Um, but uh, Jeff, the writer, met her. And Stan's great-granddaughter, or great-great-granddaughter, um, came along and supported the movie and um, gave it her seal of approval and came to the premiere in London, flew mm-hmm. over for that. So we have the support of the family, which we're, we're delighted about. But I would say Sons of the Desert and then dip into kind of any of the ones that you see on YouTube and, and watch them all the way through. There's something timeless about what they did. And some of the episodes are some of the uh, short movies are still... Uh, it's a great. It's like take, watching this stuff is like taking a warm bath, and uh, it's just <laughs> funny, relaxing, just a really nice place to be. Uh, yeah, Sons of the Desert has some beautifully timed comic moments that seem very, very natural and organic, but in actual fact are the result of military precision and planning behind the scenes. Yeah, and you guys had to kind of do that, right? I mean, was that a whole new set of muscles, comedy muscles for you? Yeah, I've done comedy before, so I understood it. But what I, I kind of, I was just victim as everyone else can be to watching 
silly physical comedy and thinking, oh, it's just nonsense. It's stuff, right. stuff and nonsense. Yeah. Because the comedy I do is tends to be more word based, and therefore there's it can appear to wear its cerebral quality on its sleeve. In actual fact, what I discovered is that Lauren Hardy's comedy is equally cerebral in its invention, but it's also something that when they've crafted it, a six-year-old child can laugh at and an 85-year-old man can laugh at. So to me, having to study them and rehearsing them and, and, and discovering stuff, that was, the, that was the revelation to me was the maths and the craft that goes into what they do. There's a scene in the movie very late on when John and I, as Stan and Ollie, are on stage doing a double door routine, which is kind of a visual comic routine with no dialogue. There's a facade, and we, we do perform it through the on the other side of the facade for the audience, and then we see behind the facade, literally and metaphorically, it's a perfect metaphor for their lives, we see Oliver, he was in ill health, stumbling and having a moment, a, a slight moment where Stanley looks to him and says, are you all right? And it's beneath the music, and he nods and says he, he is, and straight away, Stanley counts down with his fingers to the next comic move, like... Literally, the show must go on. It's quite poignant. It is. And, and we should also shout out the incredible makeup work of Mark Coulier. Mark Coulier uh, did the makeup for John, which was this huge fat suit. John wore weights inside the suit to make it feel heavy. Did the he really? Yeah. yeah. So he was he was hobbling around. And in that uh, scene, the be I talked to him about it at the screening, the beads of sweat on that big face of his it's it's incredible it yeah really those is. those beads of sweat they're real beads of sweat yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> because the weight that john was carrying around was was quite something and the makeup that john had was uh really extensive because he having to put on like, an extra 150 pounds visually and physically and uh i had a false chin and false tips to my ears and um a little gum guard that shoved my jaw out slightly to make it square and longer and flatter like stanley's so we had good special effects people. Mark was is at the top of his profession. He's Academy Award winning. Yes, yeah. Special I think he's got two Oscars already, right? Indeed, so. he, he does. He said he needs one each for his, uh, uh, for his kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's a really good guy, and he was able to to do these effects so that they are invisible. John and I were very anxious about it. Didn't want to. At first, I was like, "To hell with all that stuff. It's going to look." You know, I couldn't yes. believe it would look anything other than just Mickey Mouse, uh, not not credible somehow, or uh, cartoonish. And um, and when we did the test, I was blown away. And I th I thought, well, this is, you know, this is one thing we don't have to worry about because we sure as hell look like them. Yeah, it's seamless, and you only think of it because you know John C. Riley is not that big. But otherwise, you know, it it disappears that's, into the film. Th that's which right. Is great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming by. It's great to talk to you uh, about this really cool movie. It's a great tribute to those actors and a lot of fun. Thank you. Amen to that. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you for listening. Find us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, leave us a review. Help people find us to guide them through the rest of award season. As we mentioned, we'll have an episode next week with interviews that we've recorded with some really fascinating stars uh, and then be back in the new year with a lot more Oscaries to talk about. In the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com and all kinds of stories about everything we talked about here uh, and also on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And we're on our own on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. Uh, Krista, we'll start with you. What's your Twitter handle? At Krista Smith. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard? Rylaws. And Krista, thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, it was a 
pleasure having you back in. Thanks, Krista. Thanks, guys, for having me. I always love talking to you. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and this week's award for the worst holiday gift you can give somebody goes to Richard Lawson. We do a little parody video or something, a parody song, and then we go into a monologue that's topical but kind of warm, warmed over. And-